This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Let's get into it. There are uh, a lot of good things that we've done over the past couple of months in preaching an Advent series and uh, going through a book, uh, one of the Proverbs, but I am glad to be back in the book of Colossians. So we are going to be in chapter 2, picking it up at verse 16. If you missed last week, I really want to tell you, go back and listen to what our brother John Fulweiler said last week. He said this, fill yourself with Christ and be nourished by the things of God. That was, that's the point of the previous verses in Colossians. Fill yourself with Christ and the things be nourished by the things of God. Uh, y- you can try other things. The world is full of other things to try to fill yourself up with. But the difference between filling yourself with the things of Christ and what the world has to offer is like the difference between a great steak and a gas station hot dog. One satisfies you, and you remember it, it lingers with you, and the other, you're disappointed in yourself five minutes after you eat it. You'll regret it. So we're continuing this week, picking it up where we left off in verse 16 last week, we'll be, or verse 15 last week, we'll be in verse 16 this week, and while you're finding that in your Bible, let me just tell you where we're going by kind of Getting, using that same metaphor, that same analogy, I just want to carry it one step forward. Carry it forward a little bit. So despite knowing better, and despite sampling the alternatives, and despite an endless well of that which is good, we're often tempted by what's right in front of us. And we settle for far less than the best that's offered to us. That's where I'm kind of starting this week. Despite so many better alternatives being offered to us, we're often tempted and often most likely to just grab what's right in front of us. And nowhere is that more true than in our spiritual lives. We are offered, we're offered, now now don't miss this, what we are offered, because this isn't for a, a special few, it's for everyone here, we're offered a relationship and communion and closeness with the one true living God. So the one who created you, the one who sustains you, the one who knows you perfectly and loves you unendingly, who gave himself up as a sacrifice for you, who will never stop pursuing you, who gives you all freedom, who wants to shower and bless your life with grace upon grace. I I could just go on with the God who made you and loves you. We're offered him. We're offered that. But I think a lot of our heads will nod up and down when I say that despite the fact that we are offered that, we so rarely take advantage of it. We so rarely commune with him. You know what I mean by that? Is that that something that you can identify with at all? And and here's what I mean by this. Um, Let me just use myself as an example. I read my Bible almost every day. 
thought, when I slow down and think about it, I do this almost every day, have this in my hands. When I slow down and think about it, that what I am holding is the actual word of God. It's, it's right there in my hands. And then I can study it anytime I want, and I can meditate on it, and I can soak it in. That's a greater gift than I can really comprehend. And I have it on a daily basis, but here's my problem. Most of the time, I'm not thinking that. I'm not slowing down. I'm reading my Bible, but instead of sitting with it and marveling at it and and just thinking about what, what is right there on the table, on the desk in front of me, more of what I spend my time doing is fighting my own brain to concentrate on it for even a few minutes. Do you see the the disconnect there? I could say the same thing about my own prayer life. I mean, it, it absolutely blows me away that when I pray, God listens. If you're a Christian and you can somehow move beyond that fact, I want to know your secret because I don't think you ever should be able to. That when you pray, God listens directly to you. So the question that I need to ask myself is, why don't I pray more? Why don't I pray more? If that's what's happening, if if God Almighty is listening directly to me, why don't I pray more? And why are my prayers so weak much of the time? One of the ways Colossians 2 begins to call us out of that is by asking us to make sure we're grabbing substance, the substance of our faith, not merely kind of the shadows. Shadows can be a reflection or an imitation, but shadows are never the real thing. There's something else that casts the shadow. You can't hold on to a shadow. And shadows are always far less impressive than whatever's casting it. So we live outside of a great city. And you can see at one point what was the tallest building in the world for like 25 years or so. The tallest building in the world was in our city. I don't know if you ever have gone down and whatever they call the Sears Tower. Now, let's just all agree that we'll call it the Sears Tower for the rest of eternity. Whatever they, whatever they call the Sears Tower, I don't see people. I've never seen anybody gazing at the shadow of the Sears Tower. But I've seen many people staring up at it, taking pictures of it, trying to go to the top of it, go to that sky box thing, whatever, they, the glass thing that terrifies me and look down. What casts the shadow is far more impressive and substantial than the shadow itself. And the same is true of our spiritual lives. If our spiritual lives mainly exist in just kind of trying to grab onto the little pieces of the shadow of the real thing, it's never going to be very satisfactory to us. We will always be settling for something far less than best. You can go and you can, here's another food analogy. You can go and you can have a USDA prime New York strip someplace. Or you can go to an all-you-can-eat buffet and get something that's labeled steak there. I've had them both. 
Nothing against all you can eat buffets, but when it comes to steak, when it comes to steak, there's shadows and then there's substance. We want to talk about the substance of faith, not try to grab onto the shadows. So let's pick that up. That's the analogy that Paul uses. Colossians 2, verse 16. Let's pick it up there. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to break it down some. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Those are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up with reason by the sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see this warning not to confuse shadows with the substance in verse 17. The first examples Paul gives are with things that that people were eating and drinking and then what holidays they are celebrating. So the earliest Christian churches were primarily made up of people from two different backgrounds. You had those who grew up Jewish, and so there are certain dietary laws and, and festivals that they are used to celebrating. And then there's anybody outside of Israel who are called Gentiles. They do have some things that they do, but in general, there are far less regulations for Gentiles than there were for people who grew up with Jewish upbringing. And so whatever Gentiles typically believed before they became Christians, they had far less to sort of leave behind, whereas those who grew up Jewish, had a Jewish background, were used to far more laws. And now what you have in Colossae are some teachers saying that in order to become Christian, you need to repent of your sin, you need to follow after Jesus, believing in his name, believing that God raised him from the dead, and you have to begin living out the commands and go along with the calendar of Judaism. And the Apostle Paul says that's not so. In fact, he says that's not so, and it's also very, very dangerous to begin adding other things to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't say you need to believe upon the name of Jesus and celebrate the festivals, and that's how you're approved by God. We can't say everything is given for the glory of God, but you can't eat certain things because that will destroy your relationship with God. You can't say that. So Paul doesn't discount the value of some things entirely. Paul was a man of personal and spiritual discipline. But he clearly says that those disciplines, 
The laws, the regulations, anything that would separate us from Christ must go, and anything that can stay must clearly be seen as secondary. It's not the main thing. Paul is constantly saying Christ is the main thing. You must believe in Jesus. There's plenty of other things you might choose to do, but don't confuse what must be done for what might be done. What we're talking about here is an authentic spirituality. There is a way to feign a spiritual life. Let's not kid ourselves. You can learn what to say and to go to the right places, and you can live what will look to a lot of people, even a lot of people in the know, like a truly Christian life. It's possible to do that, but your inner life doesn't match that. And here there are three imitations or counterfeits for authentic spirituality that Paul tells us a little bit about and then he warns us to watch out for. He says, if you mistake authentic spirituality for these three things, you will not only wander from the faith, but perhaps lose your hope, your joy in Christ. But before I list this, let me just kind of tell you what kind of a warning this is. If you confuse following Jesus with primarily what people look like on the outside, the natural next step is spending more of your time and energy critiquing what other people appear to be as as opposed to considering your own heart and your own life. And that's the path to hypocrisy. So think of these as temptations that are put in front of us where if we don't heed the warning, we're likely to trade the good news and the freedom and the peace that Jesus brings for a judgmentalism and an oppressive kind of performance-based religious system. So one of those things is more focused on asking God to transform your own heart. The other, these things, ask only how do I make sure I grade out just a little bit better than at least a few of the people around me. The gospel releases you from that. These things will kind of put you in a straitjacket. So these are the three things we might be tempted to trade for an authentic spirituality. First, there's legalism. Second, what I'll call sensationalism. And third, it's possible to believe that God will be honored and pleased with an extreme form of self-discipline that's often called asceticism. So you've got legalism, sensationalism, and asceticism. So look at verse 16, first legalism. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So in Colossae, there are teachers called Judaizers. They're teaching 
is that you not only need to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection for salvation, but you need to adopt Jewish practices of, of eating and drinking, and then there, there are historic celebrations that now need to be a, a part of the Christian life. And Paul comes and says, don't make that an issue of judgment. And certainly, don't make it something that you will draw dividing lines. And he's not going to come and say, these festivals never, need, never should be celebrated. He's simply going to say, if you don't want to, don't make them a part of your Christian life. So there are people who claim the name of Christ today who believe this same thing. But there are others who have taken then our cultural equivalents and, and they've done the same thing. So there are people who still think that believers in Christ should be reflecting more of a Jewish lifestyle. I don't think that's primarily our context. And so let me talk about how we do this with cultural equivalence today. So there are some people, believers, who believe, for instance, that alcohol should be av avoided by all Christians at all times, uh, that you should not go certain places, you shouldn't watch movies. And, and, and let me be clear as I say these things. Just as some examples. There are lines. There are clear lines. The Bible is clear that drunkenness is sinful. The Bible is clear that what you put before your eyes will have an influence on your heart. And it's possible for you to be drawn away from Christ by that which is worldly. But there's an equal temptation toward putting yourself in the place of God in the life of others where you begin to make decisions for them that you have no business making. So where you see a brother or sister in Christ in obvious sin, we are called to confront them. But we're called to do that in a spirit of gentleness. That's what it says in Galatians 6.1. On the other hand, where you see a brother or sister in Christ simply choosing something different from what you would do, provided that there's not clear biblical teaching on this, then we're called for one another to celebrate the freedom that they have to do all things for the glory of God. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Here's why legalism is so insidious. It puts you in the place that only God should occupy because we're always far better at identifying the sin in others than we are in determining our own faults. And what that does is it takes our focus, takes the focus off of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and makes us think that we are some kind of de facto Holy Spirit for other people. In a sense, it says, I don't see the Spirit working on you enough, so I'm going to kind of get in there and help the Spirit along in your life. It's a dangerous place to be, and it betrays a lack of our own faith in God. It essentially says, I don't have enough faith that God's going to work in your life, so I need to kind of get in there and do some of his work for him. We don't believe that people can be trusted with freedom that God gives them, that God extends to them, and so we desire control. We desire some more rules, because that would make us feel better. This is the one that I see as the biggest danger to sort of the church and, and, and for uh, potentially having this problem in our church. 
when we decide what's best for others, it's always according to a stricter code than we're willing to apply to ourselves. We always give ourselves more grace than we're willing to give others. And when we do that, we will stop growing in the grace of God, and instead what we'll do is we'll develop a self-righteous superiority to others, and we'll begin to sort of loathe them. Or what will happen is we'll look at other people, and because we'll only see how they are at church, we'll only see what they post online, we'll only see how they are when they're out in public, we don't know what happens in their private lives, we'll begin to think, oh, we don't measure up to them. I'm not as good a Christian as they are. And we'll begin not to loathe them, we'll begin to loathe ourselves. We'll begin to attack ourselves. We'll begin to hate ourselves because we can't possibly measure up to the imaginary standard that we believe that they do. Everybody will always appear just a little bit more put together than we are. So the way to fight legalism is with freedom in Christ. Romans 8, 2 says that we're set free by the law of the Spirit from a law of sin and death. Jesus said that in him was abundant life, not limited life, abundant life. There are things that we should not do with our freedom in Christ, but our motivation is is not discipline out of fear or punishment from God. It's having our eyes opened It's having an enlightened understanding of what true life is. So there are plenty of things that will draw you away from life-enriching freedom. There are things that will draw you away from Christ. Don't abstain from those things. Don't turn away from them. Don't deny them because you believe that God will punish you if you don't. Do that because you know that life is better in Christ than it is apart from Christ. Abundant life isn't measured in how much you can get away with or how much you can prevent in others. It's how much of Christ you can dive into. And when you dive into him, you plunge into a pool of grace and joy without bottom. And so don't walk in obedience to God because of fear of his retribution. Obey him because it's the best way to live. It's the fullest way to live. And celebrate your brothers and sisters in Christ exercising exercising the freedom that they have in Christ. And be joyful. If you choose not to do something, fine. But be glad that God has given them the choice to make that, the the freedom to make that choice on their own. A second temptation, I'm just going to call this sensationalism. Look at verse 18. Let no one disqualify you Insisting on asceticism, he's actually going to come back to asceticism, asceticism uh, a couple of verses later, and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, I've known Christians who seem regularly dissatisfied with what I would just call, in a good way, a normal Christian life. Here's what I mean by normal Christian life. This is good, these are good things. A rhythm of reading your Bible, the word of God given to you. A rhythm of connecting with God in prayer. A rhythm of meeting together with other Christians to be encouraged and to encourage other people and for accountability to turn away from sin. Looking for opportunities 
to take your God-given gifts and to serve other people regularly, to be generous, to be sacrificial, to be kind-hearted. Those are all good things about a normal Christian life. But I've known people constantly looking for more than that, as if that is not enough for them. And this is where sensationalism comes in. So instead of those things, which are, are plain to Christians, they want to spend all their time in the spiritual realm, looking for the work of angels and demons. They always want to talk about prophecies and visions more than the normal Christian life. And here's what's dangerous about that. Paul says right here, it doesn't help them dive more into Christ. It just puffs them up. So some believers think that they can enhance their spirituality by looking for more mystical possibilities that our faith does account for. There are real things. There are angels. There are demons. There is prophecy given. People are miraculously healed. There are things that we can't explain in the world. But if your faith is dependent on seeing those, your faith quickly becomes in those things primarily. And the trouble, as Paul here says, that it doesn't humble people. It just feeds their pride. So let me give you, let me give you two examples. A few years ago, I got a, a message from an old friend. And the, the message was really complimentary. It was about my preaching and teaching ministry. And, and I thought that was really kind. But then it got into this kind of prophecy. My friend said things like, I was going to start saying new things that more and more people were going to listen to me and my, my influence would grow. And he began to sort of puff me up about this. And my first reaction was not praise. It was not glory to God. It was pride. And I'm thankful that, that very quickly the Holy Spirit kicked into gear and gave me my second reaction much better than the first, which is to be grateful for the encouragement that my friend was trying to give me but to be worried about what that kind of praise would do to my heart. I don't want to say new things. I want to keep preaching the clear, true gospel of Jesus Christ once and forever delivered to the saints. Somebody new listens and is saved, sure, that's great. All glory to God. But first and foremost, I don't do this because I want influence. I do this because it glorifies God. That kind of thing can puff up. Second quick example, a few years ago, I knew a guy that always had to tell a big story, always had to involve some kind of spiritual battle unfolding, and, and he was always seeing spiritual supernaturalism in the midst of what would appear to other people like mundane circumstances. I remember one time he was telling a story about demonic suppression of a stereo system. Not making this up. Demonic suppression of a stereo system. And that he prayed over the stereo system. And then the stereo system miraculously started working so they could listen to Christian music on it. Here's the trouble with somebody believing that they have spiritual vision capabilities that other people just can't possibly have around them. It makes it seem like every good work of God has to be this sensationalized experience and that only the spiritually elite, the ones who've really had God unlocked for them, can see that and have a hand in manipulating it. So they believe that their vision's better. 
Their prayers are bolder. Their faith is deeper. That's the implication. Even if they don't come out and say it, that's the implication, and it's not true. It's certainly not helpful. It's, it's really often dangerous. It divides the church into the tiers of the spiritually elite, and then everybody else is just kind of a regular person, a common person who doesn't really have the gifts, doesn't really get it. Folks, we are all one in Christ. We all have the same spirit. We've all had the same baptism. And everyone, if you are in Christ, everyone is favored and loved and blessed by God and gifted by him to be an encouragement and a blessing to other people. So don't feel that you need to sensationalize your faith. I say this in the best kind of way. It's okay to live a regular Christian life. It's okay to be a normal Christian. Finally, asceticism or kind of an extreme self-discipline. Asceticism is often, often described as a denial of yourself. So it's, it's anything that you could possibly enjoy must either be sinful or it at least at minimum needs to be rejected so you can pursue the pure things of Christ. There's a real sort of strange self-suffering here. Look at verse 20. If with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. That's kind of going back to earlier legalism, referring to the things that are to perish and they are used according to human precepts and teachings. They have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So there are believers who to some degree believe that they shouldn't derive too much enjoyment out of really anything. That life is more something to be endured rather than it is to be enjoyed. And my concern here, the trouble spot here, is that discounts and downplays the love of God. God does not want your life to be miserable. He doesn't. There's a balance, sure, between making too much of this place, this life, trying to make heaven here and, and not long for anything else. But there's a balance there between not believing that, there is, believing that there's nothing good here or enjoyable here or pleasurable here at all. And so if you believe you kind of walked in here believing that any time you get just a little bit happier, you're worried that God's going to take that away because he doesn't want it for you. That any time you have anything you like, that any time you laugh, that any time you enjoy an experience, that it's wrong to take something and, and, and even to give yourself something that, that other people might consider an extravagance. If God has blessed it to you, given it to you as a good gift, don't regret that. Say thank you, praise God, and amen. And the reason not to do that, very simply, really right here, look at verse 23. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. There appears to be wisdom there, but, it, but really it's just promoting a self-made religion. So the reason is it doesn't work. There's no value in promising what it, or there's no value in delivering what it promises to give. 
So the remedy for asceticism is not more self-denial. It's to do all things for the glory of God. I mentioned 1 Corinthians 10.31 earlier. That's what it says there. Give glory to God for the good things in your life and enjoy them. Where there's brokenness, where there's injustice, where there's suffering in the world, you don't have to pretend like that doesn't exist. You can long for the better world that God promises. But folks, the God who made you and created you that we began talking about, he also desires for you an abundant life. Christians, I believe, should be happy people. We should be joy-filled people. We should be a celebratory people. We should enjoy one another. We should enjoy the experience that, is that God has given, given us because we recognize that they are from him. If you have something good in your life, it's because God has gifted it to you. So enjoy it to the praise of his name. Bless other people with it. The most dangerous, the most insidious, the most troubling People who revel in the world are those that would just revel for themselves and would never let other people in to their revelry. Be one who welcomes other people into joy. Be one who, when somebody sees you coming, thinks, good, they're here. It will be fun. Let's laugh a little bit. Let's enjoy this. Let's be serious about pursuing Christ on our own and together. But let's also recognize that it's okay to have a good time along the way. So these three things, legalism, watch out for a judgmentalism, watch out for a harsher hypocritical standard than you are unwilling to put on other people, sensationalism, watch out for needing a higher, more sensationalized, super, supernatural experience at every turn to see the work of God. It's okay to live in a normal Christian rhythm. In fact, I believe it's healthy for you and for me and asceticism. It's okay to enjoy that which God has given you and to do all things for the glory of God. These three things, legalism, sensationalism, and asceticism, they are not the path to God-glorifying lives. Jesus is. In him is true life. So the way to turn away from all three of these things is the same. It's to walk in him. He was a man of grace. Conviction to be sure but joy as well. Abide with him. Commune with him. And finally, enjoy Jesus. Enjoy a fellowship with him. Enjoy the sweetness of being able to know that you have one who sits on the throne in heaven, who listens to your prayers, who intercedes and delights over you, and who will one day come again to take you to the place that he's prepared for you. So let us be together those with an authentic spirituality. A truly, a true growth in the grace of God and true join him together. Let's pray. Father, may we, may we, for your glory, enjoy you. May it be to us a great blessing to see all that you've put in the world around us and to delight in it. I pray that when things seem normal, 
we would praise your name for them. And may especially we not put a standard upon others that we would never apply to ourselves. May we be those who follow after our Savior toward true life. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.